Well, good morning, NSA family. A few of you say good morning back. That was nice. I won't make you do it again. I'm not that kind of teacher. Okay. Uh, it's lovely to have you with us. I want to say a special welcome to our online guests as well. We're glad that you're here too. Hey, today's message is going to be just a little different from normal. And that's because, broadly speaking, I'm going to attempt to do two things together. And the seams may or may not be obvious as I go through them, that we're doing both of these at the same time. In the first place, I get to introduce our new sermon series for the fall on the book of First Peter. And I'm going to do a kind of technological flyby as we go over it and see what's going on. Uh, but alongside this, I get to outline some first steps toward a renewed vision for our church. Now, the word renewed is important, not new. Uh, we don't have a shocking new direction for the church. We're going to be doing things that are unknown and unheard of. But there's a place for refreshing and renewing and resituating how it is that we're moving forward as a group together. And we get to close our worship service today, of course, with communion. So there's quite a lot on the menu, um, but I think we can get through it all. So I want to begin with just a simple question. Why are we going to be studying First Peter together for this next season in our church life? To get at the first answer for this, I've got to take some time to describe our cultural moment. Where are we as a society right now? Well, the first thing to say is that we've moved from an era where Christianity was in some senses a dominant religion to one in which Christianity is a kind of minority, certainly on the west coast of Canada. Uh, many of you know your history, and you know that Canada really did begin in some ways as a kind of Christian nation, but that was certainly would not be described as the case today, as people look at it. Uh, we're living in a time when the easily tweetable associations between Christianity and violence, Christianity and colonialism, Christianity and abuse, Christianity and anti-progress, have provided us with an historic spate of slanderously bad press. We've got terrible press racket right now. Uh, we've entered a time also when the dominating kind of media impression of Christianity is unfortunately fueled by our neighbors to the south, where this weird American evangelical Protestant political overlap creates a picture of what it means to be Christian. That's the main idea. And so in many cases, living in Canada, to suggest that someone become a Christian is maybe received like asking them to become American. There's resistance. Okay? Because of this, and for other reasons as well, there's a growing hostility to the Christian faith in our world. There's a general sense, I think, that um, we're past Christianity. We don't really need that anymore, do we? Or a sense that Christianity represents something we've grown out of, kind of like medieval warfare. We don't charge around with armor and knights anymore. Why would we become Christian? That's a thing of the past. Uh, a sense that we simply don't need this anymore, and sharing the gospel sounds really strange. Let me point you to a cartoon that I rather like. It might be hard to see a little bit, but it's two ducks at a man's door. They've clearly knocked on the door, and the words are difficult to see, but they're asking the question, have you ever thought about becoming a duck? I think in some ways the cartoon, in some way, kind of poking fun at this is, this is in a book on philosophy and jokes, by the way, but um, it's poking fun at, at, at how do people change their minds about things or what does it look like. But I think in some ways when you ask a neighbor, have you thought about Christianity, they receive it in the same way that a man would receive a question about becoming a duck or a goose or a snail. It's incomprehensible. I think that's part of the environment we inhabit these days. Now, in the background, there's, um, of this cultural moment, we've 
endured what's really a sweeping culture of sh cultural shift into what we would describe now as a fully secular age. Uh, secular is just an old word for things of this time, things of this era, things of the earth. Secular is not bad, it just means this worldly. It's one aspect of things. And secular time in the ancient world used to be situated alongside another reality. There was secular time and there was God's time. There was a layering to reality. And we had an understanding that there were multiple ways of thinking about how time worked and what was important and what wasn't. Now, we're talking about a big subject in philosophy called metaphysics, the idea that there's a physical world and there's a metaphysical world, a world above the world that we can see and perceive. And with metaphysics comes ideas like meta-narratives, stories that make sense of our world, stories that interpret our reality and our times. And they sit above and influence our own understanding of time. And what's happened is that today's world has become fully secular in the sense that it actively denies any reality above it. Not only is it things of this time exist, but they're the only things that exist. That's one of the claims made by the modern world. A Canadian philosopher, great Canadian philosopher, his name is Charles Taylor, writes it this way. <clears throat> he says, a way of putting our present condition is to say that many people are happy living for goals which are purely imminent, purely of this time, in this moment, of this world, no reference to anything above them. They live in a way that takes no account of the transcendent. And I think Charles Taylor is right. So what I'm saying is that we've shifted culturally from a time where belief in the supernatural was commonplace, a given, and easy, everyone believed in the supernatural, to kind of new, flattened reality. And in fact, what's happened is we've moved from three-dimensional reality to two. Instead of having depth, that we used to have a depth of field that gave perspective to our experiences, now we just have flat reality. Nothing sits above us giving interpretation. We've gone from, from texture and from, um, from something that was gritty and interesting to something that's quite smooth, where everything supposedly makes perfect sense. And one of the things that characterizes our world is an anti-supernaturalism, and really an anti-Christian supernaturalism because it represents the old reality. Uh, people are more than happy to flirt with all sorts of spiritualities so long as they're not Christian ones. And so we're in a strange time. This, in brief, is the post-Christian situation in which we find ourselves. This rejection of transcendent reality combined with a fresh, excuse me, a fresh hostility and incomprehension in response to our Christian witness. And so in this world, we are adherents of an ancient religion that finds itself once again foreign to the average person we meet. So in its own way, in its own way this situation doesn't concern me in the slightest. I'm not bothered by it at all. Uh, Lisa and I were listening to the Lord about where we were supposed to move. About 18 months ago, we were praying about what was next for us. And he brought us to four words. He gave us four words to think about. Uh, we were in prayer at our church, and these things came to us, and we had a deep sense of this is right from the Lord. We were supposed to look for a place that was urban, a place that was coastal, a place that was multicultural, and a place that was post-Christian. Now, when the Lord gave us these words, North Vancouver was not on our radar, Okay? We were looking at other cities, and this was narrowing the field for where we were supposed to look. But we had a sense of call to an environment like this. And so as we considered churches and calls, these operated as guiding points and reference points to where we were supposed to be. And after a long search, it was our great joy to accept a call to this place, which was, to our not really surprised because God was involved in it, it was urban, coastal, multicultural, and post-Christian. All that to say is that we feel we've been called to this moment and to this environment to attempt to minister in these complex circumstances, and they are complex, to the glory of God's kingdom. That's why we're here. 
So I don't read the cultural moment as a problem. I read it as an opportunity. It's an exciting opportunity. And that's one reason also why, as a church, we're now going to turn our attention to the book of 1 Peter. Look with me now at the first two verses of the book. I'm going to read them for you. They'll be on the screen. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's he's naming who the letter is coming from. And he writes to the addressees. To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Now, these first two verses, Peter is describing his intended audience. And he writes a couple words that I want to highlight for you now. First, he's writing to aliens. That word aliens is there in the, in the second sentence. Aliens. And the Greek word is parade, excuse me, parapidemois. It means people who sojourn, people without an earthly home, people who are exiles from their homes, people who are alien residents in the lands in which they find themselves, people who are expats and immigrants. That's the target audience of the book of 1 Peter. Peter also calls them scattered. Here the word, Greek word is diasporos. Many of you have heard of the word diaspora before, a people scattered abroad because they have to leave their homeland. Today we have really vivid media examples of a diaspora, like a Ukrainian diaspora, of people who had to fled the, flee the Ukraine, or the Armenian diaspora, which is ongoing for the, from the genocide from years ago. Okay? But in Peter's mind, of course, the word diaspora harkens back to the time when Israel had been conquered by the Assyrians and Babylonians. Remember, if you don't know this, Assyrian political policy was to conquer a land, and if the people were particularly irritating, they deported them. They just took the people wholesale, removed them from their land, and then repopulated it. It's one of the ways they built empire, by dehoming people. And this created a diaspora, a scattering of Israelites all over the Assyrian world who then had to live and learn different languages and different cultures and different customs, but somehow remain Jewish in the midst of often extremely hostile foreign circumstances. And now he refers to you, recipients of his letter, as a diaspora. You're also scattered and in confused circumstances, but some have to maintain a deep personal identity in the midst of these challenging times. In other words, the book of 1 Peter is written for a people who don't quite fit in. A people who are at home, but not at home. A people who have to struggle to maintain their convictions and identity in hostile cultural environments. It is a book written to men and women and families that are quite a bit like us. So over the next months, we're going to travel together through the book of 1 Peter, attending to how his instructions train us for our life as outsiders and exiles in the world. I want to go through an overview of 1 Peter. I want to take some few moments now to do this kind of high-level flyby. Uh, and this is in preparation for the coming weeks. I want to do this in three sections governed by three questions. We'll talk about who Peter was, who was his audience, and the main themes of the letter. We'll do this, and then we're going to turn to some vision stuff at the end. Okay? So let's talk first about who was Peter. Who was Peter? Well, you know the answer. He was one of the 12 disciples. Uh, he was a fisherman by trade, Right? He probably didn't have a rod and reel. He's casting nets and pulling in fish. He's along with his brother Andrew, both fishermen. They both become disciples. He's married, but we don't know if he has kids. It says in the scriptures that Peter has a mother-in-law, so he knew what trouble was like. No, no, sorry. He's originally named Simon or Simeon, which is one of the tribal names from Israel, and he's given a nickname by Jesus, Petros, which means rock. Um, Jesus gave nicknames to pretty much everybody in his inner circle, right? Uh, the Sons of Thunder, 
uh, rock. Thomas called Didymus the twin. Um, I, it's, uh, he's just giving nicknames. He's just, he likes throwing them out there. It's part of, his, uh, part of how he rolls. Uh, but this means rock. And so it means Peter's rocky probably both because he's solid and also potentially because he's a little dense. Okay? He's slow on the uptake. He's the spokesman for the twelve. Uh, and this leads to a reputation that Peter is foolhardy. Uh, oh, Peter, always foolhardy, always going ahead. But probably all of them are foolhardy. All the disciples don't get it. And Peter is just the nominated idiot of the day. He's the spokesman for their general foolhardiness rather than being singularly out, uh, set out for this. He's the biggest voice in following Jesus, but also the biggest letdown when he denies Jesus three times. And again, all the disciples except John abandon Jesus. So it's not like Peter's special in this. Every single one of them abandon him except for John. And so we shouldn't be too hard on Peter. After the resurrection, he spends time in Jerusalem with the disciples. Uh, according to tradition, he ends up in Rome. This is where he dies. So 1 Peter 5.13, end of the letter says, She who is in Babylon sends you greetings. She, probably the church, who is in Babylon, probably Rome. Uh, little ciphers and calling Rome Babylon was like insulting it, right? Saying the really bad place uh, is where I am in these ways. He's martyred in about AD 64, we believe, during a general persecution of Nero. You remember Nero? He's a particularly bad guy. And by tradition, he's hung on a cross upside down because he says, I'm not worthy to be crucified the way, same way my Lord was. Now, later tradition identifies Peter as the first pope. Uh, maybe you've heard this or thought this as well. But it's very interesting to note that in the book of Acts, it's James, the brother of Jesus, who's not one of the 12 who ends up in charge of the church. The first, first person leading the church is James, Jesus' half-brother. Uh, in the book of Galatians, Peter has a dust-up with Paul and regarding the Jewishness of the new church. How Jewish are you supposed to be is the question they seem to be arguing about. And it's interesting that Peter's the one who has to back down. Paul wins that fight. And Peter backs down. And so I point these things out because if Peter is the patron saint of anything, he's the patron saint of not always getting it right, but of getting it wrong and then having to make it right. And that's actually more important, that you get it wrong and then have to make it right, than always getting it on point. And so we can remember that Peter is called by Jesus to be the foundation of his church. In one sense, this is absurd because Jesus is himself the foundation of the church and no one else. Uh, but Peter is a model for that foundation because he's always getting it wrong and having to make it right. And I think that's the important lesson for us. If we're to be the church like Peter is, it's not as important to be right as it is to make it right. That's maybe one of the lessons the church hasn't modeled so well in its recent history, and maybe one of the reasons we have such bad press. Making it right mattered more than being right in the first place. Fixing it matters more than the other stuff. Okay, that's Peter, and he's, we believe, the author of this book. Question number two, to whom was Peter writing? Well, we read this already, 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout. And then he lists these cities, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Okay? These are all residents of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And most likely, this represents a mail route. Uh, Peter sent the letter, but he means for the letter to go from city to city in this order. I'll remind you, we covered this when we talked about 1 John um, earlier this year, but letters in the ancient world were a representation of the person. 
When the letter showed up and they were read out loud, it was Peter who was present in the voice of the letter. Uh, that's also to remind you that all letters were read out loud. Nothing was read in the head in the ancient world. In fact, if they saw you reading quietly, they'd think you were nuts. Okay, now we judge people who move their lips while reading. Uh, but back then, that was the norm because you were always reading so you could listen to what was being said. Words are always heard. They're not just thought. Okay? And letters are passed from place to place. So, like I said, very likely, Peter means for the letter to go in this order from place to place as if it was his surrogate representative moving from moment to moment. A further clue, this is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Uh, Peter says this, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Uh, now, the words are highlighted on the screen behind me, but those who preach the gospel to you. In other words, Peter wasn't the one who preached to these people. In fact, in all likelihood, he's never met them. He knows that they've received faith, and now he's sending a letter to shore up their faith uh, from a distance. So Peter doesn't know them personally. One last piece of information about the recipients. This is 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. In other words, these are Christians undergoing some form of persecution. The fiery ordeal is some form of, of difficulty or persecution or ostracization. Uh, it's probably, in the history, probably a um, local persecution, not a general one, although Nero's in the background, so anything's possible with someone crazy like that on the throne. And their suffering is what's the apparent occasion for the letter. The fact that they're suffering is the reason Peter's writing to them. Peter's heard about the difficulties being experienced by exiled Christians in Asia Minor, and he's writing this letter to encourage them so they can be uplifted. Okay, that covers our recipients of Peter's letter. Let's go to the third question. What are the main themes of the book of 1 Peter? As I see it, there's three main themes, three overarching themes that govern the book. I'm going to touch on, we're going to touch on each of these, excuse me, in the coming months, but I just want to briefly highlight them now. So this will be, like I said, this is a, te a technical flyby. We're just going over the top. So the first theme, number one, is a theology of exile. A theology of exile. We already talked about exiles and strangers, but let's think about this for a moment. Followers of Christ are exiles in the world. If you follow Christ, you are an alien, a stranger, a sojourner. You are literally an expat. Your citizenship is somewhere else, and you're living here temporarily. Okay? That's the identity of Christ's people. To become a follower of Christ means to find yourself displaced in the world. You can experience discomfort, a sense, of, uh, a sense of unease, a sense that things don't quite add up for you. And in my own way, uh, my, I and my family represent this. I'm American, but I'm of Puerto Rican descent. I'm half a Rican, so I'm half American, half a Rican. I'm a lovely picture of colonialism. Okay? I have three uh, Canadian children, right? Uh, my 12 years in BC were spent working with Chinese and Vietnamese churches, so my time was with uh, non-standard culturally Canadians in this sense. I spent five years in Scotland. We had a fourth child who doesn't have Scottish citizenship but has American citizenship, but it's, it's all kind of an exciting thing. Our passports are a huge mess uh, to renew and work on. Until quite recently, our family had no permanent home, no permanent address. We had possessions in three countries, but no place to keep them. And I was about to finish a PhD and be jobless, homeless, and penniless. Okay. This was the future we were looking into. If we were not following Christ, the situation would have been intolerable. But 
we're exiles in the world. And we knew that he had our back. And just because we're following him, it's kind of no biggie. This is par for the course. You're following Jesus, things are going to get messy sometimes, but he's still going to be in charge. It's good news. Now, there's a fascinating shift in the Bible regarding the language of exile. An exile, of course, is to be displaced from your home, forcibly removed in some circumstances from your reference points, your comforts, your relationships, your favorite restaurants. This actually was the hardest part, was that while we were in Scotland, our favorite restaurant in the entire Vancouver mainland closed. Never eat there again. Homeless, right? Now I have a homeless stomach. Okay, sorry. No, I don't. You can tell by looking at me. Exile is the common punishment through people throughout the Bible. So from Adam and Eve, they are exiled from the garden, right? A perfect home, you don't get to go there anymore. This is what happens to you. Uh, Israel exiles in Egypt, right? They have to be sent there. Uh, You've got exile in the Old Testament where they're exiled from their land. They're sent to Assyria and Babylon because of their disobedience. Exile in the Old Testament is always bad. Bad punishment, bad things happening. You shouldn't be exiled. You don't want it. But suddenly, in the New Testament, there's this reversal. Something happens. Exile becomes good. Where before being scattered was to be forcibly removed or even the running away from a scorpion. Uh, Scorpizo is one of the words for being scattered. You see a scorpion and you run. Uh, This is this, this scattering everywhere. Before, it's the scattering of a crowd. Now there's the scattering of seed. Where before it was running away, now it's being planted in other places. Instead of being homeless, now we are homesteaders, and we bear the seed of the gospel wherever we've been sent by God. So the theology of the exile in the New Testament takes the punishment of the Old Testament and renders it a mission for the new. Let me say that again. In the New Testament, theology of exile takes what was punishment in the Old Testament and turns it into mission for us. There's a reversal. Now you're not scattered in punishment, but in hope. Not to remove you from home, but to accent the fact that in Christ, your home is with him. In Christ, we take our home with us wherever we go. I'll let other preachers deal with this in future weeks. And there are some real challenges here. But I'm going to leave you with one. To the degree that you are sold out for this world, for your country, for your love of place, for your desire for experience, for your local comforts, to that same degree, you may well be compromised in your loyalty to the eternal kingdom. The more at home you feel here, the more uncomfortable the kingdom is going to be for you. Now, that's a snapshot of the theology of exile. So let's turn to the next theme, which is a theology of identity. Theology of exile, and then Peter outlines a theology of identity. To a people who are scattered in this way, people who are homeless and maybe feeling displaced, Peter speaks words of identity. You are, he says, a royal priesthood. You are a holy temple. You're a people called and chosen by God. It's all right. Just going for a pen. Next time you just ask me and I'll get it for you. You're a priesthood, Peter says, a royal temple, a people called and chosen by God. You may feel at any moment homeless, unknown, ostracized by your neighbors, alienated to a world, but God Almighty knows you, loves you, has called you, and is in your corner. 
That's part of what it means to have a theology of identity, to know that God is with us. And Peter works out these images of identity in a variety of ways, but two in particular are extra prominent in the letter. Uh, so the one of them is temple, the other one's family. So Peter stresses quite strongly that as members of Christ, you are members of Christ's temple. You are, in fact, the temple. This is a pretty astonishing thing for a first century Jew to write, for whom the temple had previously been of all places, the place where God's presence was experienced. Now, in exile from that place, no longer as bad exile, but as purposeful exile, you have become that temple. And this is mind-blowing. The presence of God rests not in a building in Jerusalem, but in you. You don't have to pilgrimage there to experience God's presence. You just have to get together as a community. Now, the worst part of exile in the Old Testament was exile from the presence of God. And that's the difference between the old and the new. Because now, though exiled, we retain God's presence. We are exiled with the presence of God, not exiled from the presence of God. It's impossible to be truly homeless when God's presence rests in your life. Of course, it doesn't rest in you alone. It rests in us as a community. Nobody alone is the temple. We are bricks and supports and tapestries and lampstands. I'm afraid some of you might be boot scrapers. But we've all got a role to play in this kingdom. Now, this in its way is the second prominent image of identity in 1 Peter, and that's the family, the household, order within it. And Peter returns again and again to images of family in this book. Uh, he speaks to order, and he speaks especially to slaves. As you read through the book, it'll stand out to you the number of times that slaves emerge. Uh, it's going to be another sermon where we get to disentangle the complex world of ancient slavery, and it was complex. But above all else, you have to remember that it bears little resemblance to the racially based slavery of the more modern world. Okay? Slaves could become slaves on purpose in ancient Rome, uh, they could purchase their way out of slavery. Um, there was a, it, wasn't, it wasn't good, but it was a very a different economic system uh, that, than what we typically think of when we hear about slaves. And we have to remember to slough off our modern cultural baggage when reading ancient books, or we will miss the point. Um, it's important to be able to do that. Okay, that's the second theme, the theology of identity. Third, and finally, is a charge to obedience. A charge to obedience. Running parallel to both of these themes, exile and identity, is this ongoing charge throughout the book to obedience for the individual, for the individual in relationships, for the household, for wives, for slaves. And Peter focuses perhaps especially on slaves because he believes that by their special obedience, they have power to change the hearts of their masters. It's a radical theology, and we'll talk about it in a few weeks. This is to get ahead of ourselves. I'll just note one passage with you briefly. This is 1 Peter 1, verses 13 to 16. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ Jesus. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, I won't comment on this passage now. We'll save it for a few weeks. Other than to observe that in Peter's thinking, our obedience sets us apart from our former lives. Obedience is the track that helps you to lock into the kingdom of God. It binds us to the holiness of God. It marks us irrevocably as God's people. Although scattered, we have an immeasurably high call to be like God in all that we do. High-level themes, exile, identity, obedience. And I hope you can see the connections between that high-level flyby and the cultural moment I described at the book at the beginning of our time today. Our post-Christian climate renders us exiles in the world. 
we don't fit in. We're not gonna fit in. That's not the point. There's gonna be some disjunction here. The growing hostility to our faith accounts for a measure of real discomfort at times as we try to live out our faithfulness. There will be discomfort. And into this situation, Peter, a messy apostle who didn't always get it right, but had to work to make it right, writes to struggling Christians in Asia Minor. He says, remember you're exiled for a purpose. Remember who you really are and make a steady effort at obedience. This is the message that I want us to work on and internalize as a church as well over the next months. In fact, one thing that binds us to Peter's time quite profoundly is a simple realization, and that's this. Christianity is the original counterculture. Christianity is the original counterculture. There's kind of some narratives that say that Christianity was once totally culturally dominant, but it's never been culturally dominant. It's been dominant in corrupted forms or odd forms, but the genuine, faithful, kingdom-based Christianity has always been at odds with the purposes and direction of the world. And in that respect, Christianity has never been the popular thing. It's always been hard. Always. Christianity's always been the affirmation that we are participants in a reality that's bigger than ourselves, one to which our Bible is the key testimony, and one in which a transcendent, supernatural, creating God has made himself known through the coming of Jesus Christ. We are attuned to a reality that is fundamentally critical of the world around us. And this sets us apart, makes us awkward. Our core affirmations have never allowed us to be at ease in the world, but it always set us up for alienation and frustration. And it is in this sense that First Peter offers us a kind of manual for being a Christian in a post-Christian world. Okay, that's the stuff we're going to talk about in the coming weeks with First Peter. And if you allow me now, I want to pivot now uh, back to our cultural moment a little bit and to talk about some first steps about strategy and vision for our church. This is the kind of beginning of the ministry season. Um, I don't want to take a whole Sunday to talk about strategy and vision, uh, but this is an ideal time to give you some idea of some of the things I want to see in the coming years and months here at NSA. Now, by way of preamble, I should say this. Vision and strategy are really complex things. Uh, They require time and careful instruction to craft. They don't come about by me holding myself up uh, in a corner office with the door shut and praying for eight weeks and then coming back and saying, I've heard from the Lord, we're going here. That's not how it works. Um, There's a complex dialectic where I listen to the Lord and our leadership listens together and then we share things with you and we see where did God speak to you as well. See, we're listening to God as a community. Uh, It's inadvisable to try and force top-down stuff on a community. It doesn't honor the way the Spirit works in us. In this respect, vision has to be declared and then developed with feedback. I think that's important. And so we're going to listen to God together for some of these things. Now, the need for a clear vision and strategy, I hope, is also in its own way self-evident. We need to be going somewhere as a church. And we need to communicate that somewhere quite clearly so that you know, as well as I do, as well as everyone around, what it is that we're trying to do. But one of the special needs of a clearly articulated vision is that it gives a reason for inquirers to become adherents, right? The curious to become regulars, and then for the adherents to become members. Vision opens the pathway for involvement and engagement in our community. It galvanizes service. It creates the tangible material for buy-in to our church life. Vision is the special place where, in some ways, you get to own the church. This is yours. It's mine. I want this. 
So in light of the cultural moment I have outlined earlier, here are some first thoughts about where I want us to head. For a long time now, the church has been identified with things that we are against, okay? So the church is against, for example, gay and trans people, or against vaccines, or against free thought, or against personal freedom of choice, or against indigenous persons, or against forward motion as a society, and so forth, okay? These againsts seem to ring in the ears of our neighbors and friends as they hear about our Christian faith. Well, you all are against these things, right? It's the kind of beginning of that. They provide the dominating narrative of the external um, forms of Christianity. But I want us to be known as a church that is for things. And in fact, I've got five things I want us to be for. There used to be four things I wanted us to be for. I liked that. Uh, but then I met with our staff and our board, and they corrected me. There was a fifth thing, and so we'll get to that in a moment. So let me briefly outline for you five things I want us to be for as a church. Number one, I want us to be known as we are a church that is for the gospel and the word of God. A church that is for the gospel and the preached word of God. I'll come back and deal with these more in a moment. Second, we are a church that is for the poor and needy. Third, we are a church that is for the North Shore. We are here and eager to minister to our neighbors. Fourth, we are a church that is for the redemption of the whole human person. And fifth and finally, we are a church that is for the sending and support of missions workers. So, you meet somebody on the street, and they find out you go to church, and they say something like, aren't you the church that, don't you hate gay people? And you can say, no, we're for the redemption of the whole human person. Right? You've got an answer for some of these things. Aren't you the church that's anti-progress? No, no, we're actually just for the North Shore. We care about what God's doing in our environment. And we have to be able to shift our narrative from things we're against to things that are for. And it means uh, when I want these fours to define and characterize North Shore Alliance in our adherents, our members, our neighbors, and our friends. Now, this means also that if I'm asking an attendee to consider membership, what I'm asking you to do is to identify with these things that we're for. We're saying, hey, we're for these things. Do you want to be for these things with us? Let's be for them together. Let's be passionate and eager about the gospel and the word of God, about caring for the poor and needy, about the North Shore, about the redemption of the whole human person, and about the sending and support of missions workers. Does this maybe sound like the kind of things you might want to be known for? Now, that's a statement of vision. This gives us a broad picture. But I want to speak for a few minutes about strategy. How do I expect us to achieve these focuses? Well, it'll help if we picture our ministry as a series of three different fields. And uh, Bob's going to help me by putting these up bit by bit. So I want you to picture, um, you don't have to picture, you'll see them, a couple of concentric circles. Go ahead, Bob. Um, So we have a broad outward circle of things. And I want to call this the first thing, our reputational community. Okay? This is going to be our reputation Our profile, this is the record of what people say when they hear about North Shore Alliance. They'll say, oh, what I've heard about them is, and so forth and so on. I'll get these up on the screen and we'll talk about them more. Inside this, there's a narrower circle, a second circle. And this one is our immediate community. These are the adherents and members and regular attendees of our church. These are the people who are regularly in the room, okay? We have a reputation outside the room, but we have something that goes on in the room as well on a weekly basis. Okay? And there's one more circle inside this, and that's going to be our spiritual core. This is this third group inside. This is the group of people that Jesus raises up for us 
to disciple. So let me go back to these three groups. You've got the picture in your head or on the screen. You can see this. For our reputational community, how do, what, what do I want our reputation to be? This is a church that's for something. A church that's for something. A church that's where the full counsel of God's word is preached, where Christ is proclaimed, where the spirit is manifest, where the poor are welcomed and cared for. I want people to know that about us. When they think of us, I want those to be the things that come to their minds. For our immediate community, this is the community where members are invited to journey into the deeper life and discover discipleship and spiritual friendship and service. The deeper life is one of the things that we care about in the Alliance, a sense of connection to God, a sense of personal devotion and developing life in your personal walk with Jesus, where you are meeting and knowing and experiencing him. And part of this is going to happen through spiritual friendship, a sense of mentoring fellowship, of partnership with one another in the Christian life. And friendship, I think, is the end game of discipleship, but we're going to come back to that. And then there's a service, which is a meaningful activity and action as an outworking of your faith. You're getting the deeper life, yes, but you're returning in service for other people. And this is what I want for our immediate community, everybody in the room. And then within this, there's a spiritual core. Because within every group, there's a group, with every group of church people, there's always among those who God raises up a sense of empowerment, a sense of vision for community and renewal for our city. Not everybody gets discipled to the same degree, and that's okay. Remember, Jesus had 72 immediate followers, and of those followers, he spent a special amount of time with 12, and of those 12, he had three favorites. He did not spend equal time with everybody. He spent the majority of his time with some. Now, this is not a secret path and a select path of like, the, 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 we don't get special hats and badges and get to show off your, your buttons to other people. That's not what we mean. It just means that as God summons you to something more, we want to be ready to meet you and to walk with you into that something more. So it's a bit self-selected in that respect. And so partly what I mean when I look at these three different fields is that our preaching and our teaching, our studies and our work, our programs as a church are all going to hit all three fields at all the same time. If we're going to make a dent in the reputation of the church in Western Canada, it's going to happen through some of these things. And in fact, it's going to happen through the formation of you as individual people. So this leads to a strategic conviction. The strategic conviction is this. Our people are our reputation. You are the reputation of the church. It's not me. It's not Pastor Ann. It's not as handsome as he is. It's not Dan Hevener. Okay? You all. Well, actually, you are one of the members, so it is you, Dan. I misspoke. You are the reputation of the church, Dan. I love it. <laughs> you are our reputation. What does a church produce? Do we produce worship services? Do we produce interesting online content for you to consume? Do we produce Bible studies and small groups? Do we produce programming? Do we produce interesting spiritual experiences? Do we produce the gospel? None of that. What we produce is people who look like and represent Jesus in their homes and lives and works and neighborhoods. We're producing people, and therefore your quality is the quality of our church. Nothing else that we do. So, how do we change the perception of the church in Western Canada? By being authentically Christian wherever we are. How do I help you to be authentically Christian wherever you are? By raising you up and lifting you up and calling you to this life together. That's what we get to do 
together.